Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Carrot O'Brien and David Mazauer. Carrot is a Galway-born writer and performer. She first began learning Yiddish at the Yiddish Book Center in 1994. She graduated from Boston University, Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude with a degree in Yiddish literature. She's a three-time recipient of a new play commission from the Foundation for Jewish Culture for her translations of Yiddish plays. She's translated seven plays by Mosh into English, including God of Vengeance, Matka Thief, The Dead Man, On the Road to Zion, Our Faith, and A String of Pearls. A 2019 Yiddish Book Center Translation Fellow, Carrot studied Yiddish theater for 10 years with Luba Kattison and for six years with Seymour Rexite while performing in the storefront theaters of the Lower East Side, in particular, Toto Konada. Her translation, Sholomash Underground Trilogy, Three Play Scripts, was recently published by White Go Press. Carrot served as the co-creator, excuse me, Carriage served as the co-curator of the Yiddish theater section of the Yiddish Book Center's new core exhibition, Yiddish, A Global Culture. David Mazauer is the chief curator and writer of the Yiddish Book Center's landmark core exhibition, Yiddish, A Global Culture. Prior to joining the center, he was a senior staff journalist with BBC World News in London and deputy curator of the Jewish Museum in London. He writes for the Digital Yiddish Theatre Project and is author of Yiddish Theatre in London. His dozens of published articles include several on his great-grandfather, Yiddish writer Sholomash, as well as explorations of Yiddish theatre and popular culture, British Jewish history, Jewish art, and Yiddish salon of Bronx poet Bertha Kling. Welcome. Hi, Lisa. Hello. So first off, it's done. It's mounted. It's on you. Well done to you both. Um, so let's start, if we can, uh, by asking that you speak a little bit about how Yiddish theater is, as you've said, David, one of the three pillars of the newly opened core exhibition. And maybe for those new to learning about our ambitious new landmark ex exhibition, which I hope everybody has heard of by now, um, a short bit about the overall exhibition, and then maybe let's dive into a discussion about the Yiddish theater section. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the exhibition as a whole really tries to provide a window into kind of all the key aspects of this modern Yiddish civilization. Um, but there was nothing I was more excited to work on than the theater section, um, since for both Carrot and myself, it's it's really been a long-standing passion and interest. Um, and so, and we'll maybe get onto this, it's kind of very personal for us both, I think, maybe more than any other section for me of the exhibition. Um, anyway, so, you know, theater was always going to be a substantial part of it. Um, you know, it's, if you were, if you... Tr transport yourself back in time 100 125 years you know to the streets of the lower east side Whitechapel in london or or the jewish district in buenos aires you could not help seeing massive posters advertising the yiddish theaters of the day and so it was it was all around it was in your face it was a mass cultural phenomenon and a mass entertainment business hugely important in modern jewish history uh, for many people, you know, where they got their history and, and their their knowledge about the contemporary Jewish world more than any other medium. 
So, uh, yeah, it's a key part of the new exhibition, and it was really wonderful to have Carrot as the co-curator for everything she brought to it. Um, You know, her deep knowledge of the subject, her her practitioner's kind of chops, um, and some real deep expertise in things like Yiddish radio and, and, you know, some really core aspects of, of the subject so so it was really a pleasure to work on it with you Carrie. Yeah it was it was actually a dream come true for me to create um, or to be part of creating an exhibition like this and as you were talking about David how personal it was to both of us because we both had these incredible mentors who were part of the Yiddish theater and in so it felt like we talked about this before that felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders to have you know, been part of creating this incredible exhibit that is so detailed and vast about the history of American theater and radio, and there's film in there as well. And what was exciting for me, I've only seen it once because I was there for the opening, and I feel like I've only seen a tiny bit. And so I can see the exhibit from both somebody who worked on it and somebody who knows nothing about it. There's so many corners that I just spent like two minutes walking by, and they're so in-depth. I mean, one thing that I've always wanted to share about the Yiddish theater is that not only how sophisticated it is and and how huge the theaters were of 3000 seats and more as well as the smaller intimate spaces, but just how varied and vast it was. And I think you've done that with all of Yiddish culture. Um, You just, it's just amazing the things that you see that both the artifacts, the typewriters, but just the histories and, and, and the unexpected people and the unexpected artistic achievements that pop up in every corner of the Yiddish Book Center now. I think it's really not easy to tell the story of Yiddish theater easily or in a condensed way. So I'd love it if you could both share a little bit about how you approached this and maybe how you arrived at the very clever idea of maybe this isn't the right word to use, but but breaking out this section into two branches, the literary and the musical Yiddish theater what the thinking was, how that helps to tell the story, and the why behind it. Yeah, I mean, I'll, well, that that last um, brilliant insight was absolutely carried. That was her blinding flash of, of genius and, and inspiration that that she sort of brought at almost the beginning of our collaboration, right? You you just sort of somehow felt that that was how it should work, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that I can take too much credit for it. It's just that, um, you know, I had these two great mentors, Lupa Caddison and Seymour Rexite. And Lupa was uh, the you know, the youngest member of the Vilna Troupe. She was in the original production of the Dibbuk, and she taught me all about the Yiddish literary theater and the art theater, and Seymour, was this incredible singer and this musical theater star and also star in English at Billy Rose's Casino de Paris. And he taught me about Yiddish musical theater and how much it influenced the American musical theater and how he had actors and composers that some would go uptown, some would go midtown to Tin Pen Alley and some would stay downtown on the Lower East Side. And these were kids that he went to school with, you know, that he knew as a a seven, eight year old boy on the Lower East Side. So in my mind and my education, which was entirely from these two people, um, was split in those two ways. So that's how I viewed it from the beginning and it, and it, um, they were so different. I mean, they were, they're very respectful of each other's 
talents and there was a couple of summit meetings that were Lubus Seymour and me where they were talking about funeral arrangements because Seymour also um, ran the, the Yiddish Theatrical Alliance Cemetery. Um, but they rarely worked together and they had uh, very different approaches to art and to theater. It just so chimed with my own kind of uh, formative introduction to the world of Yiddish theater, because, of course, you know, Shalom Ash is my great grandfather. And I had that that sort of whole side of Ash's kind of high literary engagement with the subject. But the Yiddish actors I knew by the time I knew them in the 1980s and 90s were kind of song and dance kind of guys uh you know you had to be because that's what the audience really wanted at that point they were they were doing sketches and and jokes and monologues and whatever so and and that you know the popular yiddish theater and popular yiddish culture is is in a way my kind of first passion um for that subject as a whole and so it was, there was always going to be those those kind of various ingredients brought to the mix you know there was always going to be kafka's discovery of the Yiddish theater in a cafe in Prague, this sort of wide-eyed exploration of a world he knew nothing about that was transformative in his, um, you know, his his um, self-journey into, into um, being Jewish. Uh, and then at the same time, there were going to be, there's a guy in there who's who's a, an impersonator of people and animals, Sammy Shapiro's little postcard advertising his kind of crazy range of impersonations and you know that is alongside Jacob Adler playing Shylock as as an example of the sheer versatility of the Yiddish actor so so yeah it splits those two ways musical um musical and operetta on the one hand and sort of Kunsttheater literary high art on the other and then linking them is a section which is really the introductory piece about the importance of actors, the importance of the audience, the importance of travel and global networks um, that, that defined and sustained the, the whole uh, long history of Yiddish theater. And then a, a ton of kind of crazy stories that we both brought to it, like, like Carrie, you talk about, talk about the Wonder Boy, this wonderful story you brought to the mix. Well, you know, Seymour uh, came to America when he was six years old, and he came with his father, who's a cantor, but he started making more money as um, a concert singer because he had this beautiful voice. And he went on, did a lot of competitions. He got politicians interested in his case. And then it was, he came in 1920, and then the, the Jewish quotas came in, and the rest of his family couldn't come over. So, um, Congressman Isaac Siegel brought him to Washington, got him to sing in front of an audience of congressmen and later in front of Calvin Coolidge, the anti-immigration president. And he got um, visas for his mother and remaining siblings to come over. And his the front page of the Washington Post covered the story and called his voice the greatest juvenile voice in the world today. He was about eight years old. And, and one of the incredible gifts of, of my friendship with Seymour was that his voice until about six months before he died was still incredibly beautiful. And he would sing all the time. And every story was 
punctuated by songs or he would sing like Maurice Schwartz would sing or he would sing like Ludwig Zatz would sing. And he, because he began his career so young, he had worked with Boris Tomaszewski. You know, he had worked with all of these people. So they, um, you know, Jenny Goldstein, who we highlight in, in, in the exhibit, um, used to always uh, come on to him because he looked so fantastic in a tux when, you know, she was in her 50s and he was, you know, barely out of his teens. And so he had lots of stories like that about the human element. But as, as what you were saying earlier about how versatile these actors had to be, that also blew me away in my early studies. You know, they would do radio shows, live radio shows, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s. They would do um, performing a big show on Second Avenue. Then they would do concerts. There'd be concerts in the roof gardens. All these theaters had roof gardens at midnight. They would do a lot of benefit concerts for Landsmannschaften and Jewish orphanages and other organizations. And, um, you know, the Hebrew Actors Union being the oldest union in America also kept its uh, its membership really small. So there was a smaller pool of actors than let's say equity that on Broadway. So people would be doing um, more, several shows a season and, and the, the runs of shows wouldn't be long. So you'd be contracted for a season and you do six or eight shows in a season. Whereas one, you might do one Broadway show for a whole year or two years or three years. And this was really mind blowing and inspiring to me um, as you know, as a performer and as a as a creator too, and the way the exhibit what was really meaningful, how to me was how um, important it was to you, David, to bring in the contemporary Yiddish theater and what people are creating now. And now every time I see a bump into a Yiddish actor that I know that I'm working with, I just saw Michal's wonderful show um, last weekend. And I said, oh, you have to come see it because you're in it. You know, there's a video of you or a sound clip of you or a photograph of you. And that is really thrilling the way not only the theater part of the exhibit but the whole exhibit shows that this is a culture that is continuing and evolving in ways that are surprising to all of us that's a principle that's really applied throughout the exhibition which is to bring the contemporary into dialogue with uh with the past in you know maybe unexpected ways so so um just picking up from what you were saying carrot so in the theater section you know we have a uh, a reproduction of a London Yiddish musical song sheet about the white slave trade, about which was resonant with the audiences of the 1890s and 1900s, this widespread phenomenon of Jewish girls and teenagers being um, tricked in most cases into going with these kind of charming, beautifully dressed guys, maybe, uh, maybe as a romantic thing, or maybe they were promised a job somewhere and they ended up working in brothels and in kind of hideous nightmare scenarios in Buenos Aires and places like that. And so there's a song sheet from the London Yiddish musical uh, called The Song Brazil or The Sold Daughter, right? And that is alongside, um, what's the play, Cara de Froyen, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that's with- Malky Goldman and Melissa Weiss. Right. So sort of a recent play talking about... Um, you know, contemporary Hasidic women breaking away from from the Hasidic world, and so those things set up a, a sort of conversation. Those those two uh, those two pieces, uh, and yeah, and so you know, the the thing just going back to the conversation about Seymour, the thing I um, love that you brought to that, which is you know this this sort of we're carrying the torch and and this sort of lineage and paying homage. You had um, Seymour's original 
colorized photo of him as the Wunderkind, which is has got to be more than a hundred years old, uh, you know, which you brought to uh, the show, so to speak, and is there in the exhibition. Uh, so that you you brought that um, photograph of Seymour to that particular display, you know, in the same way that I brought uh, something that was very dear to me, which is a um, an album created in 1947 in the DP camps, the displaced persons camps in Austria by my good friend, Harry Ariel, um, who was one of the first Yiddish actors I got to know well, uh, you know, at a turning point in his life as a young actor coming to London, um, having spent the war years in the Soviet Union. He then goes, he's, he's a kind of refugee stroke survivor in Austria and creates this extraordinary album pouring out his feelings about this turning point in his life which is something i loaned to the show and so for both of us that's why i say you know it is incredibly personal uh, and just it was such a delight to to kind of pay homage to our mentors and our friends uh in this way yeah oh, that was so exciting and also how tactile the show is with you know you can put on your headphones and listen to some of the famous singers, or you can watch a, a, a clip or, you know, hear some Yiddish radio commercials. And um, one of my favorite pictures too, um, is of Miriam Cresson interviewing the members of Barnum and Bailey Circus, which included acrobats and elephants. And, and, you know, because she had toured the world, the Yiddish theater, she spoke a uh, French and Spanish and Hebrew and Yiddish and English and Polish. And she was, so she would interview the, acrobats in Spanish if they were Spanish speakers and and things like that so she would just seamlessly move between languages which is another thing I love about Yiddish theater because even when we did Defroyan there was Yiddish in it there was English in it there was Yinglish in it there was Yeshivish in it you know so that is if you I think um, there's a certain type of actor, which I am, that loves text, that loves language. And, you know, it's very rabbinical in a, in a way. I see the relationship. And that's why I think Jewish theater is so explosive, both in Yiddish and in other languages, in English and other languages around the world. Um, it, it's just just this incredible facility for language and going deep with the text that's endlessly entertaining that a lot of these um, incredible Yiddish performers had and how easily they could switch languages and um, perform, uh, you know, incredible uh, texts in, in really deep ways. There are also some, some of my favorite um, artifacts in the theater section. There's this gorgeous oil painting of uh, the actress Celia Adler from about 1925. Um, that I came across in an upstate New York auction that, that nobody else bid on, so we got it for $75. And it's this glorious kind of poster-sized portrait of her in her prime, huge star on Broadway uh, and in Yiddish film and Yiddish theater. But the really spectacular thing about it is that it's painted by Ludwig Zatz, who was for many years, as Karad knows well, her co-partner uh, and a huge star in his own right of Yiddish film and so on. Um, and Zatz was deeply in love with Celia Adler and in fact proposed to her and she turned him down uh, and he ended up marrying her sister. And so, you know, that whole story, you sort of read into this this really touching, affectionate and beautiful portrait of her because it turned out, I didn't know this, it turned out <clears throat> that Ludwig Zatz was an extremely accomplished artist as well as being an actor and indeed would would um, sometimes appear in the role of a sort of bohemian artist in a garret and would paint a picture on stage during the course of a performance. I mean, you can't make these stories up. It's, it's just 
Yiddish theatre is just so full of the craziest, most wonderful stories. And so that portrait kind of allowed us to just tell that one story and, and show you um, the, the relationship between these two huge stars. Yeah, I gasped when I saw that picture. And, you know, Celia Adler is the sister of Stella Adler and the daughter of Jacob P. Adler. And um, she also, Maurice Schwartz tried to marry her. You know, she was uh, so beloved by so many people. And Ludwig Zatz was Seymour's first mentor. And when Seymour was doing vaudeville, um, he would imitate Zatz because Zatz used to play uh, yeshiva boys. And um, Seymour soon became the age of a yeshiva boy, you know, like 10 or 11. And Zatz had this big hit show on Second Avenue. It was Rumshinsky's, which we talk about, The Rabbi's Melody. And then he got booked uptown because it became such a star on the Yiddish theater, which happened to about a dozen or more, a couple of dozen Yiddish actors, that he went uptown to Broadway to play in Potash and Perlmutter, and they needed someone else to play the young yeshiva boy in the Rabbi's Melody. So Zatz recommended Seymour because Seymour had been doing um, impressions of him. So Seymour got a starring role on Second Avenue before he was even in the Hebrew Actors Union, or they arranged him to get into the union pretty quickly so that he could play that role when he was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. You know what I just discovered just this week? Um, that the Yiddish Actors Union is not, in fact, the first theatrical union in America. It's actually oh. the uh, the Jewish Choristers Union, which was mm -hmm. a Yiddish theater, choristers, men and women, um, union that was in 1886. That's years before the Actors Union. And these are mostly cigar makers and cigarette makers, uh, you know, factory workers. And in the evening, they're doing amateur Yiddish theater, and then they end up forming a union. Why do they form a union? Because the theater manager slaps one of the choristers in the face during a rehearsal, and they think, okay, enough of that. Let's form a union. And they join the Hebrew trades, and they are the first, by a long stretch, the first, first theater union in America and surely anywhere in the world. Uh, is actually amateur men and women choristers, probably teenagers mostly. Amazing. Um, yeah, and so it's it's just an endlessly fascinating subject, the theatre. You know, all the intellectuals in New York in the 1920s are going to see Morris Schwartz and his Yiddish art theatre. Um, so it's it's so multifaceted. It has this this sort of deeply grassroots embedded popular. Um, side to it, but it's also got this, you know, the Vilna Troupe and Morris Schwartz and um, my great-grandfather's play, God of Vengeance, which premieres in German first um, by Max Reinhardt in Berlin before it's played anywhere else. So it has this kind of starry intellectual literary history that that's um, very important in theatre history more generally. And so we, we bring out elements of all of that in the theatre section. And also what I don't think people realize is what a commercial success a lot of Yiddish theater was in its heyday. Like Rumshinsky's The Rabbi's Melody was the highest grossing show in New York that year. So that made it made more than any show on Broadway and things like that. And the Yiddish actors would make more often than um, the English speaking regular actors um, on Broadway because it, I think they had an extra show or but, you know, they were just again, it was a smaller group of people and they were able to negotiate um, better for themselves. But that's not to say, like Miriam Cresson, who's uh, Seymour Rexite's wife, who I never met, but whose work I know well, um, were radio star, Yiddish theater star. She, when she came to New York as a kid, like 13 years old, she tried to get a job working in a newspaper. She was too young, working in a factory, sewing purses for $8 a week. And then she got 
a gig in the chorus of the Yiddish theater in Boston, where she made $45 a week. And this was in the 20s. And she was a teenager. So of course, she jumped at it. And of course, she was from a religious Jewish family. So she couldn't tell them what she was doing. And then she just said she was late at school studying. And finally, you know, she wasn't going to be able to, you know, the rehearsals were during the day, but the shows were at night. So she had to get the theater producer who was friends with her uncle to call and it was a huge scandal. But somehow they convinced this family uh, to let their daughter be in their show because they couldn't, it was too late. They couldn't bring someone else in now. And that's how her career began. And that, um, you know, those origin stories, I was fascinated by um, the, the actors I met in London and came to know well. Uh, you know, almost all of them had grown up in really quite traditional families, often very poor, um, but deeply versed in the texts and they went to to Hebrew school and and you know they could um, they could convincingly portray a wedding a funeral say Kaddish do any kind of religious scene on stage that was demanded of them with complete um you know complete sort of accuracy and and uh and and so they they sort of straddled these multiple worlds you know my friend Bernard Mendelovitch would spend all his spare time going to Covent Garden to see the opera in London um, and, and so on, you know, and told me these stories. His father only knew King Lear in the Yiddish version. He, he never saw the English Shakespeare version. He only ever saw the Yiddish King Lear. And so, you know, to him, King Lear's daughters were Etta, Gitala, and Tybala. He was kind of amazed to learn that there were any other names for King Lear's daughters. And so that's a quote that, you know, is there in the exhibition, just as illustrating this sort of trying to get your head inside the the, the worldview of the sort of Yiddish theatre audience. Um, so we had a lot of fun putting it together, I think is fair to say. We did. And, and I think that's what exactly what you say is how it, it straddles worlds and what makes that makes it so exciting. You know, you go from, uh, you know, the, the art theater to the musical theater to, you know, you can go anywhere in the world as a Yiddish actor, almost every continent. And it would became a passport to, to, to seeing the world. And um, so it's, it's uh, to me, the, the, the life of a Yiddish actor is, 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 or the, of a Yiddish artist um, in the 20th century is incredibly inspiring because it gives us a model for um, a successful way of being a prolific and productive uh, um, artist that's not necessarily commercial. Some of them, of course, like Molly Pecan were big commercial stars, but a lot of them had other jobs and were just determined to create in their voice the things that they had to say or perform or to write. And it's very inspiring to me. Well, I think it's safe to say you're both um, tied very personally to the story um, and could wax poetic for for days um, on, on all of these stories, which are really wonderful. But I want to try to bring it back a little bit to the exhibition here. And I, I know from being adjacent to this how hard it was to tell this broad story and to tell it within the confines of space. Um, and you did it brilliantly. And people will come away with an understanding of personal stories through artifacts and all the rest of it. Um, so I thought maybe we could just end with um, a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of what went to the director's uh, cut on the floor and also what you hope people will take away from this exhibition. 
which we're going to encourage people to come and see. It's it's expansive, but it's also digestible in terms of giving you entry into the world of Yiddish theater. What I hope people take from away from it is what I felt when going in there, which is, oh my God, this is amazing. There's so much here. And you know, and one of the hardest things, which I couldn't do at all, but David did and was expert at, was making it the visual more important than the words even, because that's what you're drawn to first in the exhibit, but also the brevity of what you were allowed to say. This was an anathema to me. You know, I thought I was here, I'd write him something and send it to David and he'd be like, okay, but cut 90% of it. And, you know, how do you keep the the heart of what you're trying to say, but you, you figure it out. But also it's just, um, I, I, not that the, for them to think that the exhibit is so great, but to think that the lives, the incredible artistic lives of these amazing people all over the world, creating in the most difficult circumstances during wartime in captivity um you know through poverty creating the most beautiful art that it inspires people to want to know more and to to create whatever they have to create in their lives just to your the other part of your question lisa um you know what was left on the cutting room floor, which which you, of course, had a ringside seat on and, and were involved in. Um, I mean, there was a lot, um, but but it's funny because, you know, as with the rest of the exhibition, if I go around it now, I, I really have to struggle to sort of think of those things that were left out. It feels, you know, it feels, feels good. It feels right. It feels like this. We, we were constantly, and you were an instrumental part of this, Lisa, you know, the designers and you were saying, you know, less is more, um, bigger images and fewer of them. And that was absolutely the right advice. Um, so just a couple of examples in the theater section, you know, there's there's a section of um, a Holocaust memorial section within the theater section, which highlights about 10 of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of actors and theater people who lost their lives or murdered. Um, and there were only 10, and that was painful to me to go through. I went through hundreds of photographs from the Ghetto Fighters Museum archive in Israel, extraordinary archive that was brought there by a colleague of, of all these people who were murdered. Um, and just to kind of, you know, discard them to get down to those 10 um, was really painful, but it was necessary. Um and oh, the other thing that you were, of course, very involved with, Lisa, the Lantern Slides, this beautiful collection of, uh, unique collection, actually, of, of Lantern Slides from around 1903 of Yiddish actors that's in the YIVO Institute in New York. Uh, it's just a stunning set of about 45 colorized photos of men and women um, in their prime, in their 20s and 30s. Um, and that was that was one of the many areas in the exhibition which really involved a lot of research because um, although Yivo did a beautiful job of digitizing these slides, they never pinned names to every one of them. And so it's still not clear exactly who they all are. And I, I spent a long time with one of our colleagues, Nina Varenka, theater historian, trying to work out exactly. I mean, some of them are obvious, but many of them are not so obvious. And so we ended up, I think, Lisa, we've got six of the lantern slides in that particular part of the exhibit out of the 45. I really, really wanted to show, you know, 
45 of them maybe on a sort of carousel or something. And you you have this lovely idea to show them as a sort of light box lit from behind where they really would be spectacular. So maybe one day uh, we'll do that. But but again, you know, six of them is fine and it allows them to be kind of dinner plate size. They're round, they're beautifully colorized. So you really get a good look at those those particular six and you know the, the rest of them well they'll have to have to wait for another day um so that was a constant process throughout but i hope that when you know people come it's not too overwhelming but at the same time we've done justice to the extraordinary variety of this subject well again hats off to the two of you to tell such an enormous story but to tell it personally and compellingly and to leave us knowing people that we might otherwise not have known and to see that there's a thread um, from past, uh, present and future with contemporary um, work being interwoven. Um, for our listeners, you can plan your visit to view our core exhibition, Yiddish A Global Culture, uh, at the Yiddish Museum Center's museum and visitor center are open at Sunday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We offer free public tours Sunday at 11 and 1. You can learn more and plan your visit at yiddishbookcenter.org slash visit. And with luck, we'll allow um, both David and Kara to keep curating more content that can go on the periphery of this great exhibition. So thanks to you both for bringing um, Yiddish theater into view. Oh, thank you, Lisa. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.